Okay, so I'm a little nervous this morning because I've actually never done what I'm about to try to do. So be gracious with me as we kind of work through this together. So last week I said that we, I, I, we were going to start the book of Revelation. And a lot of you went, <gasps> like, traditionally, like, only, like, really gutsy or uh, crazy or poorly motivated pastors would try to tackle the book of Revelation because it's really complicated and it's kind of scary. And so last week I was like, this is, this is the story we want to do because I think it's a brilliant story and I, I'm compelled to do it. And uh, it actually came out of a conversation with Chrissy because we were coming to the end of Mark and Chrissy's like, well, as long as we don't do Revelation. And I was like, well, <laughs> let's do it. And let's, let's do it. So what I've never done is what I'm about to do, and it's actually do like a, I, I would call more of, I don't want to say high level because it sounds esoteric and, and pejorative. It's academic. It, it, I think Revelation requires an investigation that's not usually given on a church Sunday morning sermon because it's complicated and it requires, I think, a little bit more of a good explanation before you jump into it. Because I don't, I don't want to mislead or um, give a false idea. I also don't want a lot of angry emails. I don't want to accidentally step on, on triggers and landmines that are kind of dormant in our framework of faith. So, are you willing to come on this journey with me? No, yeah. oh, okay. Is that good, Mike? You can work with that? Okay. How's that? Everybody see that? Nope. Is that better? All right. Can everybody see that? In case, I'm a, I'm a visual thinker. I think with pictures, I may end up drawing. The only one who said no was my daughter, so that's right on cue. I'm going to start by opening the book of Revelation. I'm just going to read the first couple, couple lines here. And there's one word that's very, very important in this first, um, first verse. This is coming from the message. Revelation 1, 1, a revealing of Jesus, the Messiah. God gave it to make plain to his servants what is about to happen. He published and delivered it by angel to his servant John. And John told everything he saw. God's word, the witness of Jesus Christ. How blessed is the reader, how blessed are the hearers and keepers of this oracle word. All the words written in this book, time is just about up. So there's a lot right there, right off the bat. But I think to actually get at it, we have to zoom way, way, way out. We have to take a macro view of this tiny passage. And it starts with God. And I'm actually going to draw Jesus as God. Okay? This is like a little meeple with his red sash. And he's happy. And his arms are out. So before the beginning of anything, before the foundations of the universe, God was. 
the Trinity, <laughs> the, the triune Godhead, Jesus is, I am, I'm there. This is super important. Okay, so before anything, God is. And then God made the universe. And the whole kind of creation narrative, we can start with the world that he called good. Here's the earth. We're going to call this creation. He made the earth, everything in it, and inside of that earth is what? Creatures. And what else did he make inside the earth? You can shout it out. People. And these people are endowed with kind of that innateness of God, the breath of God. The like, that's the likeness that we share with God. We're relational, we're creative, we're thinking, we're emotional. We have like thoughts and will. We're not just, you know, rocks that have, you know, nothing going on. There's a relatedness. We're like God. You know, but then stuff happens. You know, the serpent comes into the garden Things go awry, and sin enters the, the world, and this kind of idea of creation and union and communion with God and his people is disrupted. So God has a plan. And he says, I'm going to, as people are growing and the population is getting bigger in the world, I'm actually going to separate some of these people who are going to be my chosen people. Now, this is not because he necessarily thinks these are the best people, that he's picked out the best-looking, the smartest. He actually chooses a really weak people, a, a, an almost insignificant people. And, and through the insignificant, he's going to show himself through his people. And so if we stopped here, we would say, well, this is interesting because there's something about these chosen people that separates them from all the other people of their time. There's something really distinct about God's chosen people and his relationship to them, the nation of Israel through, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tribes. There's something really, really, really unique that separates the chosen from the rest. Who could take a guess at what that is? You know the answer. It just sounds complicated. All of these people are worshiping idols. They have a very distorted framework of the divine. And they worship idols, they worship people, they have, they make sacrifices to these gods, and they have this kind of pantheon of gods. And the, those gods really reflect almost a mere image of, of who they are as people. But God's chosen people stand apart because they don't have idols. They don't have shrines. They don't have something that they can hold and possess like these others. The chosen have this invisible connection to their God, the God of one, Yahweh. And he does not manifest in a shrine or an idol. You can't lay your incense at his feet he is, I am. He is the God of creation. And he's good. And he loves his people. He loves his creation. He loves those who fell. 
He loves the world. So how then does the invisible God talk and relate to his chosen people? He sometimes speaks directly. Moses in the burning bush, like a bush on fire is talking to you. That's pretty wild. Like, but that's very rare. You know, Elijah on top of the mountain, God whispers to him through the wind. That's rare. God at Sinai with Israelites below, he is talking to his people. But it is terrifying. And the Israelites say, we don't want that anymore. We don't want to talk to God directly. It's too much. But God does speak directly. He often speaks through others through stirrings or prompts or movements of the heart. There's a communal aspect to how God speaks. So we see this in the Old Testament with lots of like the prophetic voice of God. It's, uh, it's Prophet Melinda giving an oracle to Blue Mountain Community Church. She's speaking, God is speaking through her to others in community. Or you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to like reach out. God speaks through others. And God also speaks Through the scriptures. So he can speak directly to you. He can speak audibly to you if you're lucky. He can speak directly to your heart, make an appeal right to you on the inside core. That happens a lot. He can speak through others. And he can speak through the scriptures. Words. Now here's where it might get a little wild to think about. Words. Communication. The human species, and the more we're learning with science, we realize that a lot of creatures are actually in communication with each other. Did you even know hammerhead sharks are in conversation with each other? Did you know that? Wild. They're like a communal pod. I don't remember. The, what are they called? The pod? Hammerhead shark. No. 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 Never mind. But they do talk to each other. Doesn't matter. People talk. But here's something about words that uh, we can't take for granted, but we do. Because we talk so fluidly to each other, without even thinking, once, once you're, a, you're a small child and you learn language and you're kind of absorbed in facial cues and, and eye movements and mouth movements and, and, and emphasis and how you land on certain words, we do this so easily and we exchange it so quickly and readily. And it's such a part of who, what it means to be a human. We actually forget that words are highly interpretable. Right? Words, whether spoken, but especially when they're written, they are symbol. Words spoken and written, I will make the case, I will argue, is art itself. It's art. It's a shared art. We all share an agreement that this symbol, A, makes the sound A. But when you really think about it, it's just three lines. Are you my fall? Is everyone falling or am I crazy? Have you have I lost everybody in the room? What's that? 
What did you say? My phoneme. Oh, A says, what? Oh, sorry. Ah, A, miss. Amos, no, it doesn't sound right to me. I don't share that art. It's art. It's art. It's symbol. And symbol requires interpretation. Now, we share common interpretation. But once you start getting a little bit further into that, you can see where this, gets, this digresses. That we don't all share the same idea of what the word art means. We, but we've arrived that A-R-T spells art. And it sounds like art. But then when you get further in, you're like, well, what, what is art? Well, that's not art. Well, that's art. Well, this is stupid. I, my, my child could do that. I could do that. Why is that a million dollars? On and on it goes. Because it actually requires interpretation. Symbol requires us to interpret meaning from the thing that we're trying to interpret. So when you get into this part, if you, if you can see where I'm trying to go, God makes a world that he loves, and he sets people on the world, and they're in communion with each other. Before the fall, there's this ease, ability between God and people. He's walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, and there's a there's high, just fluid communion between them. Sin comes in, breaks it, and now there's separation, there's distance. God's not going to come in as an idol. God's not going to come in and say, worship me because you can see me as a big bronze statue. He says, no, no, this is going to require some faith. This is going to require relationship. This is going to require love. I'm not going to be an idol. I'm going to separate people to kind of reveal myself to them. And there's only a couple ways God can do that. He can do that appealing directly to the hearts and minds of people. He can show up in a burning bush, but that's rare. He can appeal to others, and he can appeal to the witness of his work in the world through word. So if you have your Bible, you can hold it up. Just hold it and just, just flip through it. Okay, I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to do that. It's also going to buy me time to erase the board. Flip through your Bibles, hold it. Is everybody with me so far? Have I lost everybody? We're good. Okay, we're good. Okay. So this, this Bible, Biblios, word, is a library woven together over thousands of years of an evolving story, an evolving witness of greater God with his people, chosen people, appealing to their hearts, to their communities, in word, both orally and written. And over time, this is where if you were to slow walk the scriptures, we start in Genesis, we move on, we get into the New Testament, we get to Revelation. If we were to slow walk, we're going to start way back with Moses. He's kind of credited for a lot of books in the Bible. The Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, tuk meaning book, the first five books of the Bible. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses writes these down, probably during the wilderness wanderings. He writes out these stories, and they become this kind of binding agreement for this emerging chosen people that is Israel. But Moses isn't done. There are other Old Testament writers. We'll highlight a couple. We've got David and uh, Samuel. They've written some books. And what happens is because words are interpretable, that it's all art and requires meaning and interpretation through meaning, what actually happens is as, these, as time goes along, this big arrow is time, and we're going to put the, the chosen people of God on this timeline. As time goes along, history doesn't stop. And things happen throughout history. It's like the roller coaster. We've got big empires who clash and fight. We've got nations who, who threaten with oppression. We've got fights and, and blood, and we've got highs and we've got lows. And as this goes along, and every writer who's writing another part of Scripture only can write and reflect to where they are in time. Right? This is important. It's, it's, it's obvious when you think about it, but it's actually really important because it makes, it makes us read the Bible incorrectly if, we, if we're not careful. If we were to stop in 1 Kings or 2 Kings, the writer of 2 Kings only has their perspective and backwards. Right? They don't have exile. They don't have Daniel. They don't have Ezekiel. They don't have Jesus. They only have, from their perspective, backwards. And they are interpreting their time in history with everything that's gone before and where they see things going in the future. This is important, and it's kind of a weird thing to think about. And this happens over and over and over again. And it makes the Bible an incredibly, incredibly rich, dynamic book. Incredibly rich and dynamic. This book is not made out of tissue paper. This is not a, you could poke it with your finger. This is like, I would argue, the most robust, complete, compelling library of stories on planet Earth. We don't have to be afraid of wrecking this thing. Maybe we do. <laughs> Time moves on. And the writers and the community of God are in this relationship with each other. And God is speaking through the authors in their context through oral and written word that is interpreted by the people. And there's this kind of give and take back and forth. And if you know the Old Testament story, we, we know that the Israelites really don't get it right. They really, really struggle to see God, to trust God. They get in a lot of trouble. There's a lot of bad things that happen. They're, they're, they're in exile. They're, they're pushed out, etc. 
and it's and it's really interesting. Then we come to the to, to the, the pivotal point in the story is that creator God enters the story himself. And then we have the New Testament and all the New Testament. And the same thing is happening again with the New Testament. There are first books that are written. I, I would argue Mark is the first book in the New Testament written, maybe some of Paul's letters. But they are interpreted on each other. They are like working off of each other. They're in concert. It didn't just happen in one day. These books have taken sometimes decades to write. And then there's this giant collection of books. And the New Testament writers are looking back at the Old Testament. And, and they're interpreting. So here is where Revelation comes in. And two, well, three really big words. Now, maybe you are aware of these words. You know these words. Maybe this is brand new for you. I think I spelled that wrong. We have a big word called hermeneutics. Who's ever heard of that word before? A couple of you. Hermeneutics. The root word is Hermes or messenger, the messenger god Hermes. He was the guy with the, the, the feet fluttered around. We have a big word called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is basically, what does this mean? When we come to the Bible, when we come to the books of the Bible, come to the New Testament, we come to Revelation, and we ask a hermeneutical question, we're asking, what does it mean? And what does it mean today? How, do, how can I apply her, proper hermeneutics to the scriptures. How do I know what the creator God is saying? What's right? What's wrong? What's true? What's not true? We have to apply hermeneutics. You have to get it like the, the meaning of it. So you can't just kind of like make it up on your own. However you feel, that would be wrong. That would be distortion. But there's a, a, a word that is even more important I'm going to write it below hermeneutics, which is particular to Revelation. This is a weird word. It's called exegesis. Who's ever heard of this word? Maybe Jason taught you all this stuff. He probably did. Not exit Jesus. When I first heard this term, I thought, exit Jesus? What does that mean? Exegesis. Exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is to say, not what does it mean today, what, is it, what was the original intention to the original audience in the original context of its creation? Exegesis would say, who actually wrote the book of Samuel? Exodus would say, I'm going to take off my biases. I'm going to remove my prejudices. I'm going to remove my assumptions and say, I'm not even going to assume because it says Samuel, that Samuel is the author. Who wrote Samuel? When did that writer write Samuel? Why did they write it? How is it constructed? And the way that it's written and constructed, what can I learn from that? And what was the intention of that book? 
Now, this is a very different approach than a hermeneutical approach. Eisegesis is to say, it's the, the, the exact opposite, is to say, what do I want the Bible to say? What do I want, who, I'm going to impose my view on, to, on top of the scriptures. I think this, I believe that. I don't care about archaeology, history, fact, uh, how things are constructed. I don't, I don't care about dating. I don't, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to put in what I think is right. And you can see how that could become really dangerous and really awful. We do not ever want to do eisegesis. Pro tip, if you feel like a pastor is implying or applying eisegesis to their view of the scriptures, run to the hills. That is what Paul is calling a, sheep, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Those are the people that you just run away from them. They may sound great, it may feel good, it may inspire you, but boy, if, they are, if they're putting on their view of the scriptures over top of them, and they're eisegesising the scriptures, bad news bear. Don't, don't go near it. Don't fall for it. Exegesis must come first before hermeneutics. Everybody with me? Good. We are going back in time. When we open our Bibles, we are going back thousands of years Thousands of years. One of the scholars said that, uh, that I read is like, Revelation was meant to be read aloud because most people couldn't read. That changes how you write something. You know, it's not a flippant text or something you can copy and paste. The writer of Revelation is like, I get one crack at this thing, and I'm going to share it, and it's got to be read aloud. That's a different kind of approach when you're trying to understand what the Bible is actually trying to say. Exegesis has to come before hermeneutics. You have to know. I don't have to. I think that's, that's the wrong way to put it. You are more equipped. If you know the author, you've got a pretty good idea of who the author is. You've got a pretty good idea of the date. You've got a pretty good idea of how the book is constructed. What genre does it land in? Why it was being written? And who was the audience? What was... Where were they on this timeline? Time what could be impacting them? What was, it, what was it like to be that first century person or that, you know, sixth century BC person hearing this for the first time? And spoiler, they, these folks don't have the, the concepts and ideas and terminologies that we do today. They don't have the developmental sciences. They don't have medications. They don't have police and governments like we do today. They don't have social security nets. They don't have bank accounts. It's a very, very different time when all of these books are written. So you, it's really, really important as a biblical reader, particularly leaders, pastors, to remove themselves as much as possible when they're coming into the text. I'm not going to impose my views of the text. I'm not actually going to impose what I think the text means. I'm going to do a, a proper exegesis as best as I possibly can to understand under the hood of this book. 
that I'm about to read. And then, once I've done that, then the meaning actually makes a lot of sense. It's a lot easier to do a hermeneutic, to know what it means. How can I apply it today? What is that for? What does that mean for my life right here and now? A proper hermeneutic after I've done my exegetical homework. Here's the thing. Exegesis isn't easy. It's hard, and it's complicated. Some may find it dreadfully boring. It's not obvious. It's not a manual you just flip through and be like, oh, that's the answer. Scholars are debating stuff all the time. They have been forever. And it takes guts and courage to say, actually, I think this is the way to read that text. Or I think this is the wrong way. I'm going to take this approach. That is unsettling when you are confronted with complex problems. And the church has not done a very good job, in my estimation, of letting people sit in discomfort. We want to give quick, easy, this is what it means. Don't be, don't be afraid. Be secure. This is what it means. Actually, I think we need to do more exegesis. We need to get a little bit more uncomfortable. And this is where I come back to art and story. This is under Amos's hood. If I was a car, I'm lifting up the hood and I'm showing you the engine. My approach to sermons and preaching is actually I want to just tell you a story. I want to give you the best exegetical information that I can artfully, creatively, as narrative. So you can do your own hermeneutic. So you can sit with that. What does that mean? I don't know. That's tough. That's interesting. So you ask hard questions. If I've done my job well, I don't want to tell you the answers. You have great brains and big hearts. You, you love Jesus. He speaks to you. He's going to. I trust that. Good exegesis, I believe, comes out in story. And the last thing that I'll get to, because I'm running out of time. Is everybody still with me? All right. Thanks, Mercy. So why all of this verbiage to lead off into Revelation? Well, because, folks, Revelation happens to be the most complicated book in the Bible. It is an exegetical rat's nest. Okay? So I want you to think, now that we've got these two terms, hermeneutics and exegesis, of all your, if you have any kind of idea or um, history of the book of Revelation, what, do you, what would you say has been applied to Revelation more? Hermeneutics, eisegesis, or exegesis? Church leaders and pastors, church systems, which, who's winning that race in our reading of Revelation? How do you think? Who would say eisegesis? Who would say hermeneutics? Who would say exegesis? 
There's very little exegetical work on the book of Revelation. That's unfortunate. So your gasp last week of like, whoa, why are you touching that book? Why is this not preached on? Because so much eisegesis and hermeneutics have been applied to this book, to this story, and it has made it so confusing that it's robbed one of the best, most compelling, powerfully envisioning stories in the entire scripture. This story should be at the bedrock of everything that we do. Not something that only the nutty pastors touch every 10 years. But there's been so much hermeneutic, i.e., what does this mean today? And there's been so much eisegesis, I'm going to make this what I want it to mean, that it's made it just a, a disaster. It's just a pile. It's like, like, like if Mike just throws a pile of wires on the floor, you're like, oh, I don't want to touch that. How do you untangle that? Rats and I don't know. Where do you even start? Which is really, really unfortunate. So, I am not applying eisegesis. I am not going to apply hermeneutics. I will do my best exegetical homework and share revelation with you as a story. Because really quickly, if we were to do a quick exegetical survey, do I have, do I have three minutes? Yeah. Is everybody okay? Or has everybody got to rush home to the, to the pot roast or something? Two minutes. Okay. We have a book. We have a writer. And we have a book. Right in the beginning, it says John wrote this book down. Don't assume anything. Who is John? What John? You can't just assume. When you're doing exegesis, you can't just assume, well, that jo that's John the Apostle. We don't know. Okay, so let's, who is John? Does it matter? Sometimes scholars say, pastors say, well, it doesn't matter who wrote the book. Let's just read it. I say no. I always want to know who wrote it. Because who writes it may, may, makes a big difference as to what they're trying to say. Where are they in time on that timeline? That's a, there's a lot of variance that can happen in there. Because I'm not applying a hermeneutic to my reading, I'm not going to assume that when it says ten heads on the beast mean the ten kings of, of Rome. Okay? Does that make sense? You follow me? If you get in Revelation, you're like, well, there's ten heads on that beast. That means, but those ten heads, those are the ten emperors of Rome, and therefore if there's ten emperors. We're going to count back from ten. Therefore, it's got to be here in this timeline. That is a hermeneutic. You're applying, you're not really releasing so much of your, your application before you've got into the real nitty-gritty of the date, time, authorship, context. So it could, it's John. What, who, what John? There are lots of theories. It could be John the Elder, just a random guy named John who is an elder. Well, why do you say that? Well, because John the Elder, he doesn't say that he's John the Apostle. Wouldn't John the Apostle say that he's, I'm the Apostle of Jesus to give his book more credence? Well, no, he, he didn't because he's the elder. He's not the Apostle, John the Elder. Or it could be John the prophet. There's a guy who had this like prophetic ministry, and he had this wild imagination. It's John the prophet, and he was a part of the church community in the early church. 
John's a very common name, so this guy had like a prophetic edge to him. Interesting. Well, why would you say that? Well, because John the prophet writes in a way that's really wild. Like it's, it's unlike any book in the New Testament. It, does, it stands alone with the symbology and the imagery and the vivid pictures and stuff like that. That kind of falls out of what most of the New Testament writers were like. So it's John the prophet. Or it's John the apostle. Well, why would you say it's John the apostle? Wouldn't John the apostle say that he's the apostle? Yes, but wouldn't John the apostle not have to say that he's the apostle? What if John the apostle said, I'm John the apostle? Wouldn't that make it seem like he's trying to be John the apostle, but not? Wouldn't John the apostle, who's old at this point, just have a really well-established community? He doesn't need to introduce himself as the apostle. He's not Peter, for Pete's sake. He's John. He's been around a long time. He's an old guy. Well, why else would you think it's John the Apostle? Well, because historically, a guy named Irenaeus, who was an early church father, knew a guy named Polycarp, who was an early church martyr. He actually knew John. And he said, in some very early writings, Irenaeus said that Polycarp once said that John is the writer. John the Apostle is the writer of Revelation. Well, why wouldn't it be John the Apostle? Well, John's writing in the Gospel of John, if you think that John wrote that Gospel, some people don't, I do, it doesn't really line up. It doesn't jive. He's using some shared language, but he's not using all the shared language, so it's like, maybe it's not John the Apostle. But then it's like, well, if John the Apostle is seeing something really wild, and he doesn't have words for it, he's going to be reaching to try to describe things that he can't describe. And there's enough shared language between his gospel and revelation that it makes sense that it could be John the Apostle. But here, I think, is the slam dunk. This... I, I make the, the case, in my mind, I believe... It's John the Apostle. It's not John the Elder. It's not John the Prophet. I think there's a slam dunk case to be made that Jesus shows up to John on Patmos because John was there in the very early days of Jesus. He saw his life and ministry. He saw his death. He saw his resurrection. So it really makes sense for then John to see Jesus in his full glory. John knows Jesus deeply, intimately. And it makes a lot of sense to bookend early, middle, death, resurrection, glory. So knowing all of this exegetical information, you have to make a choice. I choose, I kind of follow the church tradition in this way. It makes the most sense to me. And I actually disagree with N.T. Wright about this. So I love N.T. Wright, but I would argue with him about this because he doesn't take this view. John the Apostle is the writer of the book of Revelation. Well, once you have that kind of established, well, then you have to kind of, you kind of know your time frame. When was this book written? Well, John died somewhere in like 90 AD. So it can't be written past that. It can't be written much more before that. So then you're narrowing on a, on a date and time with certain kind of context. 
Well, here's something interesting about that, is there isn't, I spelled that wrong, don't worry about it. There is not widespread empirical persecution of the church during the time of John's life. Interesting. Patmos was actually an inhabited island. And he was sent there as like a passive get out of my way sort of deal. But he wasn't a prisoner. He wasn't in chains. He wasn't in, he wasn't in slavery there. There wasn't even a quarry or anything like that. He's just kind of sent off to kind of live in solitude because he was causing trouble. But there isn't widespread persecution around the empire. So when you get into the book of Revelation and you see the persecuted church, you have to say, well, what is that talking about? We're not getting to hermeneutics. We're looking at history. We're going to say, well, there's a lot of localized persecution. By 90 AD, Nero had already massacred a lot of Christians. So that happened. But Christianity wasn't outlawed around the empire at this point. That's interesting. So what is John saying when he uses the word persecution, the word church? Well, he's talking about localized persecution. He's talking about persecution that already happened. He's talking about things that are going to happen. And when you get into the book and you start pulling out all the symbolism and the metaphor and the narrative itself, it can get really, really interesting really complicated, but incredibly simple. So I am, I am way, way, way over time. Here, all to say, what you're going to get from me in this story is what the story tells us. All right, oh, that's a terrible Jesus. What you're going to get is you are not going to get a hermeneutic. I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is. I'm not going to talk about microchips in our hands. I'm not going to talk about the rapture, premillennialism, postmillennialism, pre-trib, post-trib, none of that. I'm not going to forecast the, the last days, when, when, if we're in the last days, geopolitical stuff. I'm not going to talk about any of that. The book of Revelation gives us exactly what the book of Revelation is about. If you remove your hermeneutic and your bias, you come at it exegetically and you read it, it starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. And Jesus is in his glory. He is holding the keys to death and Hades. This is a, a brilliant literary device that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, employed. This thing is sandwiched beginning to end with Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is Jesus. And the whole narrative of the story is talking about a happening or happened a happening and a happens. It is a polyvalent, which means multi-dimensional approach to things that have happened, 
things that are happening right now and things that will happen. And that applies to all of time. This has happened already. It is happening right now and will happen. And you have to really use your imagination to hold this tension to say, this is a classic now and not yet of Jesus. The kingdom is happening right now, but it's not yet. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Jesus is outside of time. He was there at the beginning of the foundations of the universe. He was the same then as he is now. He is the author and the life breather. He holds the keys to death and Hades, the beginning and in the end, no matter what happens. That doesn't change. And the story of Revelation really can be boiled down, I think, to two ideas. I'm actually going to put a rest. You can rest in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust God. Trust his good order for creation. And resist the dragon. The thing that's trying to destroy it. And the book of Revelation goes, you know, it's manifest as empire and as king and as conquest and as violence and as greed and as famine and as pestilence and all these awful things that have happened, happening, going to happen. But despite that linear timeline, Jesus is beginning and end and you can rest in him. He is the start and the finish he holds the keys to death and Hades in life. He is the one who's going to usher down the, the heavenly kingdom and the waters of, of the rivers of living life will flow. You can drink from it. You can trust him. Church, first century. You're going to come into some really hard times. You've already felt it. You're going to have more. It's going to get hard. Empire is going to rule the day. It's going to look like a, like a dragon, like demolishing the world. Don't worry. North American church, it's tough. Life is hard right now. It's going to get harder. Don't worry. You can trust Jesus. Resist the dragon, the beast, the harlot that seek to destroy what Jesus has implemented. So from here on out, I've gone way over time. Thank you for that. That's for being patient. From here on out, you will not get hermeneutics from me. Lord willing, you won't get exegesis from me. You will get story as exegesis, as a narrative. And as we work through it, as we go through this incredibly compelling story, we will be like held by the love of Jesus as we work through it. And you can trust him in that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, I thank you that you are beginning and end. I thank you that you are the I am. 
that you're the gate, you're the good shepherd, you're the way, you're the road, you're the life. I thank you that we can trust you, we can trust your goodness, we can trust your love, that we can rest in you, that no matter what is happening, what's happened, what's going to happen, you bring all things to work together to your final end, which is beautiful, full of love and forgiveness and redemption. We thank you for that. We thank you that you speak to us, and may you continue to speak to us today through our, our hearts, through others, and through your story. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.